Welcome back to Pneumatic Materials. My name is Nate, and you're listening to episode two, the second part of our conversation with a guest who wishes to remain nameless. In this episode, we continue our conversation from episode one, covering art, love, suffering, and God. And we hear from our guest, what makes Baroque music divine? If you'd like to support our guest, you can find her Instagram linked in the show notes, where she's selling some beautiful old jewelry and clothing. Here's the rest of our interview. I wonder, um, Ashley, if the the experience of a of a poetic reading or of a reading in general, um, maybe you know, in in more context than just the purely artistic one. I don't know. I I may have the uh, wrong sense on this, but I feel that the act of performance can be generative um, for the performer as well. Um, that it can help to develop uh, this your this new persona as you as you um, become into your own as an artist, as more than fifty one percent of an artist. I think I think I can answer. I. Um... You know, because I, I also was thinking about what uh, Derek said about um, being brought back into the fold or being a part of the fold. And, you know, I mean, granted, we met only recently, but I have uh, avoided the fold for a very long time. In fact, I make myself less and less reachable constantly, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> understandable I take really no i mean but now do i do this again it's like do i do this because it's purely a conscious choice no it's it's also what feels like the right thing to do at the right time certain point in time you know it was just the right thing so there i i feel as though i've had many opportunities to be i almost said institutionalized (laughs) i have (laughs) who amongst us I know that's true in in more than one sense, I guess. But, but I really, I really think that I've had um, many opportunities to, you know, many opportunities were presented to me that were sort of like easy fame grabs, Uh, and and any time that I came too close to being considered a part of the, the larger milieu or something, I started feeling really weird and uncomfortable, and I. uh, Then I destroyed it. (laughs) You know, I just Mm -hmm. like raised it completely. And this is this has happened um, several times in my life that I've I've raised it completely, and that's why it's unless you're really dedicated for God knows whatever reason you would be, it's very difficult to piece together the the comprehensive history of of my existence, you know, as an entity or whatever, uh, which is fine. It, it's not really worth investigating. I never really did anything that was all that interesting until recently, but it, it's still it's still something that I find myself uh, eschewing. Um, in that I don't want to be, I know how easily even now probably I could somehow capitalize on my notoriety or I could work my way back and probably, you know, the pathways are not, the bridges are not completely burned. Like I, I could, if I wanted to, I could get a new shtick. I could, uh, I, I could, you know, be overexposed. I could do things that, that I'm sure are like lower hanging fruit and I could very easily become a part of something again and people would, would highly regard me. But the thing is that when I was in that position, uh, before I, I deleted all of my social media and stuff, I was just feeling really stupid about everything. I was like, mm. it wasn't even just that this isn't me. It was like, this sucks. You know, I feel like ashamed of it. Like, or not even really ashamed. Like, it it just meant nothing to me. And um, and people all the time were, were giving me compliments over how much the stuff that I did on social media meant to them or something and increasingly I was like well this is just I just felt disconnected I thought this is really silly and so I never want to be known unless it is for something that is uh reasonable you know or that is actually like like um what is the word I'm looking for it worthy and I know that the, that the thing is, though, that the other people's defi- definitions of what is worthy are very different from my own. So it has to be by my own definition. So I keep myself in, in, in perfect Miltonian isolation until or unless I come up with something that, that allows me to be known by others. <laughs> do, you, do you think that, um, I mean, I, I really relate to what you're saying tremendously. I've moved through different industries and then I've done all manner of things and um, 
I sometimes I felt stopping along the way can congeal an identity I don't want congealed to be known in something for some accomplishment or achievement or matter of creative output. I've often looked like, you know, doing that inside of the system that we all live in, you know, obviously you start to get asked to do more of the same thing because that's what brought notoriety to you to begin with. And I think I've harbored an unconscious phobia of that that I've been contending with in the last like five, five or less. No, really just the pandemic. Yeah, that's a, that's a good time to think about things. And I'm wondering if you feel that, if you feel that at all. Um, that if you did try to capitalize on yourself at whatever moment in time, would you worry about like the process of self-transformation stopping, of becoming, stopping, of you know re reaching for those mystical experiences, which I think have to be like renewed and refreshed constantly, um, ending? I it's it's something that I'm contending with, so I'm curious what what you think. Yeah, it would stop. I mean, that's exactly why I haven't done it. If, if I, and also I was, a, I was a much worse person, um, before I, before I, uh, got, got away from those things. You know, I really uncoupled myself from a lot. I disentangled myself from a lot of things and, and that's what allowed me to, to, um, become a better person, even just a smarter person, a better person creatively, like in just in every way, morally, uh, just, just in every way actually. And so, um, if I had never uncoupled myself from those things because there was some kind of immediate incentive associated with them, you know, some kind of comfortability or familiarity or even just like I was actually making a little bit of money doing something that was fairly easy, uh, I, I still got rid of that because it was hampering my spiritual development. And now I'm an entirely different person. Had I not done that, I would be stuck there still. So I think it's absolutely true. And I think that that's the reason that I, it's not like because I'm truly ashamed of myself or embarrassed of my past or anything. I, I'm really not. It's, it's just that I, um, I don't want to be, I don't want to be dragged down by these things. I, I, I and also even by, you know, as much as people think that they're such positive things, people have such a positive impression of, of various things that I've done at various points in the past. It doesn't, it doesn't feel positive to me because I see it, I really see it as, you know, something that prevents me from actually becoming transfigured. Yeah, you're no longer that yeah. person. I'm not. I'm really. I'm really not. I was much younger then. I was also just much, much uh, more ill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting, and I think um, it's if it's <laughs> maybe it's ten more percent of the missing forty nine percent of being an artist. But I think to 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 be a, <laughs> like a, a person according to teachings of many spiritual doctrines, especially the Bible. Um, it is about constantly becoming. It's about adaptation, change, and reconciliation, compassion, all of these things that we've talked about. And I, I do feel that those things can get held up when we stop in those moments. However, we live in a world that's kind of diametrically opposed to that because yeah. it might yes. offer the symbolic illusion of progress, but that's usually what, what we settle for. It's purely symbolic. And there still is a of, I'd say a root feeling in society that there is a true self to uncover that you can go back to something instead of just like not seeing that as the the illusory narrative of I have really of like survival of evolution of like the day to day it's like from a subatomic level up to up to you as as a whole entity like you're constantly different you're constantly changing constantly becoming and maybe a real artist is someone who's always moving through those things because that's showing what it is to really be a person is to continue to change and grow. So if your practice seems like it can't be bolted down, like people are trying to make a linear trajectory out of it so they can canonize you and they're just like, well, this is the mature phase of your no, whatever. No, play the old shit. Like, ex exactly. Low key fell off. Exactly, right? Or now you're like a 65-year-old a successful whatever artist and you're just like banging out what you're known for. Repetition for every Yes. Yeah. I understand that. And like, I think there are some artists who maybe can still find mm -hmm. a way to get the bag and do what they do. But I always find that getting that interferes with, and obviously anything you accept as a metric of acknowledgement changes the trajectory of what you're doing. So, Well, not to... to I, I, mean, I, just, I love this like thing here. I feel yeah. less alone with it now. This is awesome. Sorry. I mean, not to bring things to like too much into the you know specific um, contemporary dynamics of of 
net culture, online culture. I mean, I think the, the world of Facebook Web 2 is very much one about um, giving you this opportunity to, um, in some ways, like establish an identity through social media, um, but immediately it wants you to, to pick a stable identity um, and then continue to be associated with that identity um, to market to or to, I don't know. I mean, I'm they're, a prism. They're, I'm not a mirror. Yeah. I'm a crystal. I'm not a mirror. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I am, I hopeful is a very <laughs> generous term, but I do see some, um, reaction against, um, this, uh, classifying and reifying uh, function or force behind a lot of web 2.0 social media. Um, yeah, it, it's something that needs to be uh, fought against um, vehemently because... So I that, need like 50 Instagram yeah. accounts to like have all yes. facets of my identity. <laughs> exactly. Okay, understood. <laughs> no, don't do that. All of your I'm alters. Kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Let all of your alters out to play, right? <sighs> Yeah, I don't. I don't really don't enjoy that trying to flatten everything into one exactly they all cogent get flat, yeah. identity. It's like uh, that's insane. Identity a well, prison? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> my my other problem is that I, I think the reason that um, I have trouble talking to people about uh, really anything, but just. What, what it, my religion guides my life utterly, so I don't um, I don't really make decisions for any other reason, and I have uh, very few concerns that others would consider to be practical. I feel like I'm playing a different game, or I'm operating within a different framework than most people, and so a lot of um, what guides the decisions that I make are, 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 are like um, is my discernment, and and so it's it's kind of like once you determined once you've been able to see rather I mean more than determined because I didn't really choose I didn't really decide that something was right or wrong it's more that it, it was uncovered uh, it became uh, obvious to me once something you once you understand something to be wrong then I think you have a great deal of trouble uh, doing it anymore consciously so it makes it impossible. I mean, that that's that's mainly the reason why it's like the. And now, I mean, of course, it'll sound ridiculous if I say, "Well, that's why I can't get a job," um, but it, it sort of is, you know, because yeah. it's yeah. like I couldn't yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do the things I used to do because I know that they're wrong, and at this point in my life, I'm so committed to my my Christianity yeah. that um, I just I can't I can't fathom doing that. I I, I could never go. I can't go backwards because but, it would yeah. be like a betrayal of my own. Of yep. my own heart and soul. The cognitive so, dissonance required would be like a lobotomy, no, probably. You yeah. couldn't couldn't do it. Not with I, I'm not, any reward. I'm not capable anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and and that's what also guides the decisions that I make. As far as I mean, I can't say I have a career of any kind, but just as far as the you know the things that I do, where I appear, and when, and why, and how, and and all of that. I mean, what guides those decisions? It's 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 discernment. It's I know that mm -hmm. this is. That this is and and, that, and that's why they're so specific. The visions I have for things are incredibly specific, um, mainly out of concern for wrongdoing, because I know that if I if I did something, certain things cannot be repeated. Certain things only make sense in certain contexts. I can't partner with many people. I can't work with many people because of a, like a moral opposition, really, and moral and aesthetic, um, which are really the same thing to me. <laughs> so. So it, it's like I, I can't, there's so many, there's so many things I can't do uh, that it's like each and every thing that I end up doing is just so, to the detail, incredibly specific. And it provides also no, an opportunity to, to, to create a career really at this, at this point, because <laughs> I don't know what I could do more than once. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but what you, what you can do, I mean, by, I don't know, you're, your discernment is all all you have or all we have yeah. um, at the end of the day. Um, and at least by a kind of negative movement of, of determining what you what you won't do. I mean, I think looking backwards, it's always easy to see how much how overdetermined our lives are. You know, the the, yeah. the decisions that may seem 
um, you know, well, or very specific um, looking forward, I, I think they kind of reveal themselves to be really the only way uh, things could have gone. Um, I don't know, maybe that's just playing like playing games with um, causality and, and that sort of thing. But well, maybe your, your whole life is the art project then, because if, if uh, most people hold like what, three or four roles con- consistently for their whole life, it's like mm-hmm. child, parent, employee fan of said whatever you know like sports fans exactly like whatever whatever it is it's 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 meant to be consistent if it's not consistent people think something's wrong with you so (laughs) you know what i mean mean, yeah so so like so the inconsistency (laughs) on the surface everybody thinks uh, there's something wrong with me you're telling you're telling you're you're, you're preaching the choir here uh if uh, on the surface it seems that way inconsistent because People don't, there's a mystery, right? There it is. There's the mysterious aspect. What's going on with this person where I don't hear from them? They're not constantly posting. They're not constantly making a, a woven narrative of their life, whether or not it's real, but like it should depict enough for me to know at all times. They're not constantly representing a yes. hyper-specific static version of themselves yeah. so, to and, be consumed and uh, reposted and yeah. So in not doing that, um, I would I would say it's offering a better path forward that is truly more indicative of what it means to be alive today. I mean, we basically Certainly. live in a schizophrenic system that I'm not, I don't think its first priority or second or third is uh, my continued existence. So mm-hmm. I, I, in, in my mind, I think that style of expression reflects a more accurate and true depiction and possibly a path forward for people trying to make sense of things today. I mean, I'd love to see a world where people actually can own and move through multiple roles in their lives as they see fit without having to publicly justify why they did it and then experience metrics of pleasure or pain based off how many likes of approval they get on those things. Um, Let's just stop doing it. That's pretty much voluntary, though. Just stop doing it. Oh, I, hey. It's I'm, that simple. I'm, I'm, I'm with it here first. But you're working against, though, our, child, our children growing up in a system who see that as, an, yeah. as a viable way out. Because, like, if the them. world is, you know, through the media, they think that the world's falling apart, you know, there's the wars, global war every year. It's like, oh, actually, there's only eight years left of global warming. There's only three. It's too late. Like, all of these mm-hmm. things that come out, and children see people getting popular for, you know, un- simply unboxing things on YouTube, for all of these mm-hmm. ways to monetize just being because they just want to be. So I try to I try to look at that as like I can empathize with that, but I also know mm-hmm. children and adults, we're all up against teams of the best psychiatrists, anthropologists, like UX, mm-hmm. UI designers that make all of these things beyond your ability to. It's It's not as simple as not doing it. It might be for us because we are a little older and from a time mm-hmm. in which like I experienced both pre old internet, pre social media experiences and post internet, all information at your fingertips, myriad identities, yada, yada, yada yeah. kind of thing. Well, I mean, so we have a unique yeah. perspective in, in that sense. But I think also going back to uh, something I've found with a lot of, I don't know, spiritual or kind of moral maxims I've tried to, you know, hold throughout my life to varying degrees of success is the hardest lessons to learn or the hardest ways of being to internalize are, they are that simple. To, to love your brother as yourself, you know, is, it is just that simple. It's just that mm-hmm. simple. Uh, but it is. Uh, but when you first encounter it, you're like, oh, yeah, I know, whatever, like, it you takes, know, but you don't. There's, you there's, don't know. Yeah. Right? There's a lived experience. Wisdom is not taught. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's lived. To maybe shift topics a little bit, specifically to um, the Baroque music that um, you know is is one of your passions in life, or maybe that's I don't I don't want to speak for you there, <laughs> um, but I know you you've expressed to me your your preference for specifically. Um, Baroque music. Um, and while I'm not super familiar with um, the musical uh, side of, of Baroque cultural production, um, one thing that struck me studying uh, the art history of the Baroque period 
um, was how the movement from a Renaissance conception of the world as being fundamentally regular and ordered, uh, moving to a Baroque conception of the world, um, a lot to do with Kepler's discovery of elliptical orbits, um, mm -hmm. of the universe being not something that is uh, controlled by strictly regular um, machinic properties. Um, you see this kind of manifest in the architecture and the art of the Baroque period in a kind of embrace of variation, excess, deformation, um, this kind of understanding that, that God's creation itself exhibits these qualities. Um, and I was wondering if, if any of that resonates with your understanding of Baroque music. I might be totally off base and mixing apples and oranges, but I, I want to, to dig more into, um, into the musical side of this period. Um, maybe just what compels you the most about the Baroque period um, in music. Well, there um, there's liturgical music in virtually all periods of music, uh, so it isn't isn't only that um, that you know like because I, I know when I, when I talk about Baroque music, I think it's the I think it's the one of the most sacred, uh, or rather, like it's was kind of a great time for sacred music. I mean, that's just how I feel. So there, there's other liturgical music, yes, like liturgical music has been written forever and ever, and um, but I like Baroque music the best. If, because I think that the sacred music is the best of that era, and or at least in Europe, and then also because even the sort of like non sacred music, you know, the music that's sort of moving more, it's not not explicitly Christian or not explicitly religious in nature, was still very, it wasn't very far uh, removed from mm -hmm. from sacred music in my opinion, and what I. Sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say I was listening to a little bit of Monteverdi's Orpheus um, oh, earlier today. I was talk about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Um, you I, like I, it? Yeah, yeah. The nobody likes that <laughs> shit except for me, so that's cool. Yeah, I, the the prologue. <laughs> Why does nobody like that? Um, I don't know. Is they're all stuck up? Everybody wants to say that they they like everybody. Well, uh, people are either either they're like they love Verismo, Puccini. Oh, you know, yeah. Puccini is the main guy in Verismo. I'm not a big fan of that. They either they either love like guys like Puccini who are a little more contemporary, and they, or, or or they're into Wagner or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. no, nobody mm -hmm. nobody loves Baroque music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where are my Theorbo enjoyers? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny you bring up you bring up uh, you know Orpheus because I I mean I love Orpheus. The story of Orpheus is one of my favorite myths yeah. ever. I Incredibly love it so beautiful, much. haunting. Yeah. So cool, and <laughs> that's what I mean though is that they they had these. Uh, it was like there was like liturgical music, or the this was early opera. This is when opera really started to to be, and and Monteverdi's uh, Orpheus is one of the first operas ever written, and it's um, it's just. Like with these Greco-Roman myths, I mean, they have such similar themes to a lot of liturgical music, or they have just sort of the I guess they're they're the greatest themes that exist in all of uh, storytelling. <laughs> so, you know, with Orpheus, Orpheus descends into hell. Now, granted, or into the realm of the dead, one could say, but th this is the same in scripture too that Jesus descends into hell. In some translations, it's like the realm of the dead. It's it's really prior to the existence of heaven and hell, in which you know Jesus is life, death, and resurrection occurs. So, in fact, his resurrection is what creates heaven and hell, in a way. Um, and so, so Orpheus, there's something Christological about Orpheus descending to hell, even though he's descending into hell to recover Eurydice. And then, of course, there's something, there's, there's, a, moral, uh, there's a moral lesson in, in this, because it's Orpheus, it's his lack of faith that causes him to lose Eurydice forever. Because he turns, he turns around, just like uh, Lot's wife turns into the pillar of salt. You know, it's like I, of course this, this is of course this is my shit. I love that. That's just my favorite thing. You know, and um, I just also, and I'm, granted, there's a lot of Baroque music that's, there's some Baroque music that's cheerful. I won't say I hate the cheerful music. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of cheerful music though. Do you but, find but, that to but, be uh, less sacred, <laughs> the cheerful music? Well, 
In a way, yes. Strangely, that's actually a good point. In a way, in a way I do, because I think that, and I also think it's less beautiful. It isn't that I don't like it or that I can't find beauty in it, but what I like the most is music that's sort of, it has either like the, the, the gamut of emotions or it's mostly tragic. I mean, this is the music that, that I find the most touching. Like it was something that's sort of, there's a sort of darkness about it, uh, which is, I guess, sort of indescribable. And I think that's one of the, one of the reasons that music is like the, the chief art form. It's the greatest art form, in my opinion, because it's like, it's actually quite difficult to talk about it, to pinpoint what about it is so great. Um, but there's like, like the Ave Maria, for example, that's a Bach Gounod Ave Maria. Um, and it's my favorite version of the Ave Maria. Something about it is like unmistakably dark and strange. I don't know why. I couldn't tell you. I mean, I don't really know much about music theory, so there's that. I'm sure that someone with more technical knowledge could pinpoint a part of it that creates a darker sound or something. But it's like the Ave Maria is just is just uh, the 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 whole the Hail Mary prayer. So it's not like terribly, you know, tragic. But there's just something that's sort of like lacrimose about it and with with much liturgical music not all of it of course and also a lot of those those great arias from that time i will say i think that um que faro yuridice is from it could be from monteverdi it's from another or it's from the other guy who did uh what's his name oh my goodness there's this other guy who did another, they, there's a billion orpheus operas there's like so many of them but some other guy who did uh He's the same guy who did the one, uh, Helen and, uh, Paris. Uh, I don't remember his name, but there's, you know, there's another Baroque composer. I will say I don't like that aria as much because it isn't as tragic as, say, Lasciate Mi Morire, which is like, oh, don't, just let me die, <laughs> you know, which is from, which is from Ariana, uh, which is a different, I forget, I think Monteverdi might have done that one too. I might, I might be completely wrong, but my, Glick was the other guy I was thinking of. So there's just... There's just like so many. Uh, is it Gluck? See now, I don't. I don't know very I think, much about music. I think Luke. Um, I just a quick Google search. Party de Adelena is. Uh, oh, he did. Okay, is, I was uh, right. Gluck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, del mio dolce ardor. Yeah. That, that, that's that's uh, Paris. He's singing that about Helen. Uh, that one. That's a great aria too. Heck, I love that aria. It's one. Of, it's in one of the most basic uh, music books for students. Anyway, uh, but it's like. Paris, and it's not, Paris isn't saying anything terrible. He's saying, finally, he's, he's, he's actually very excited for the fact that he's going to see Helen. He loves Helen, and he's saying, I will finally breathe the air that she breathes. And yet, there's something the way, uh, the way about it, uh, how it's written, or the, some, some of the, something in the, in the lyric, and also in the music, where it's like, oh, it feels so tragic, <laughs> even though he's, like, quite happy. You know, he's expressing joy. Something about, um... I, I'm sure again, you know, it kind of, as you said, some of the, somebody with more music theory knowledge might be able to put this in, in terms um, that are a little more, you know, understandable, but whether or not music, the, the major and minor scales, or whether there's anything inherent to a given uh, scale or set of intervals that conveys emotion um, or whether that's all culturally culturally constructed is something that I've I've thought about a lot. Um, this this one example always really fascinated me. Um, I was looking up um, Greek Orthodox hymns on SoundCloud uh, as one does many years ago, um, and I came came across a, an account that uploaded hymns um, in the Greek original um, and in English. Um, and in listening to both versions of, uh, of the same hymn, um, I realized that the English version was in a major scale, just a kind of standard major scale. Um, but the Greek original was in a modal scale um, that I don't know if it was Dorian or Mixolydian. Um, but something about the, um, that differential there um, seemed to convey of a, a conception of the divine that was somehow, I don't know, it, it's, it seems that, and, and I've noted about a lot of Western or English church music, um, when compared with the kind of modal scales used by the Orthodox church, I don't know, it, it, it seems to convey a, a very different quality of the divine. Um, and so I, I totally understand your your sentiment that 
these these works that can ostensibly be you know a kind of happy scene from an opera there there can be something maybe it's only indescribable because i don't know <laughs> anything about music theory um but that quality of music that is completely other um than i don't know it, it seems kind of of all the art forms in some ways the most direct there is no kind of conversion of you know of reading a painting and and seeing oh the, these are these concepts i recognize no music is it's immediate it's the, uh, in a way that a lot of other artists universal not. copy of the will itself mm -hmm. right? yeah it's schopenhauer yeah yeah so schopenhauer does through the re music, repetition you know? of signs that we can subjectively find ourselves within well uh, this is maybe a silly thing to say but i think that happy songs are for children <laughs> and that isn't to say yep. that there's something wrong with that. And there's also something about these happy songs that can be quite tragic uh, because in the your childhood is, uh, to me, it's associated with loss. And so uh, happiness, happy songs then become tragic even just without any aspect of them, you know, without there being any sort of uh, actually intended tragedy in them, they just over time, because of the how they change in meaning to an individual, they become tragic. But I am reminded of, in William Blake's Songs of Innocence, uh, Piper piped that song again, and the child wept to hear the song. And of course, the child could be weeping for joy, and more than likely is, but you know, weeping, um, of course, is, a, is a, something that someone does when they're grieving. So it's, it's, just, it's just interesting to, 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 for me to think about that sort of thing, is that so much of childhood is, uh, is well, childhood itself also is very tragic, and it, as, as it progresses, I mean, in every moment, you know, these things are, something is lost, and things are slowly escaping you, and then you reach a point of uh, the consciousness of all that you've lost much, much further on. So um, there's also... Uh, one of my favorite poems of all time is in the Songs of Innocence too. It's William Blake, uh, The Lamb, where he says that that uh, Jesus became a little child, I a child and thou a lamb. And so it's just, and that, that's the thing about, of course, the figure of Christ. Like Christ was a, was a man who experienced uh, all these terrible things in at the end of his life. I mean, his life ended in sort of the most horrifying uh, tragedy, violence, and yet Christ was also once a child. Christ was an infant, I mean, the divine child. Uh, Christ was, was a human, you know. He was fully human and fully divine, and Christ was God. And, of course, we're all children of God. I mean, it's just, it's just that these things have so many meanings that, that we, are, we are both extremes at once. So I guess in that sense, there's nothing to reject in in um, happy music, though I will say that to your point about Western American liturgical music, or if one could even call it that, just the music that they play in churches, especially the more co contemporary stuff, it just isn't very moving. So, I, I mean, that that's my problem with it. And I think that since it isn't very moving, it takes one out of the moment. Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, I've experienced um, liturgical music that it in in a as a perfect complement um to the space i was lucky enough to um to uh to visit to it to attend a cello concerto um in italy in a in a gothic uh, maybe late romanesque church um and the proper combination of of music and an architectural setting it can be an incredibly overwhelming experience um, and to see it wasted or cheapened um, in that way that doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to, to work to, to aid the, the words being spoken. Um, but th I think, think subjectively, like, what if you grew up in that environment? Maybe the dumb, happy music would be where you find your transcendent experience because it's because you grew up in something else or vice versa. I mean, it really, I think and it that's, that's a part of it. Yeah, and I, I think thinking about, um, Deanna, what you said earlier about the pain of childhood, that takes reflection and insight. It's not always immediately apparent to people, and a lot of people 
I would argue, majority of people go through life not looking back because they can't or won't or they don't. It doesn't really matter, but they don't. Um, and so, I would agree with you. Like, I think I would find similar experiences in music to be sacred in that way, because I've opened up like the conduits of pain in my life across the entirety of it. I think I have access to them, and I understand, and I'm can see them from different points of view as well, the necessity of them and how I grew. Um, but I've also had sacred experiences and things that I guess are just abnormal for me. Like mm -hmm. the first time I was exposed to, I don't know, like I mean, 10 on peer-to-peer -peer networks and it's the first time I heard like harsh noise music from like the 70s, I was floored. And I don't know if it was, a, a transcendent experience, but I know I wasn't thinking about anything else because that completely denied the structure of what I understood to be listenable. It mm -hmm. felt cathartic in a way, and it doesn't anymore because it's like the nature of mystical experiences. They're fleeting and they can change, and if you're a changing person like we've talked about and you're always growing, because I'm really interested in how we all subjectively encounter the sacred, and I think if you're a person who's changing, that will change too. Um, and I think if there's something that is sacred for long, like if Baroque music has held sway over your life for like 10 or 20 years, I think that's incredible. That speaks, <laughs> that's, but that speaks to the power of it though. It really does. And yeah. you might have the right environmental factors or the right context or not, whatever it is that just makes that really speak to you. And like what you were saying, Nate, like, yeah, it is very unfortunate these things aren't in those environments. I mean, that's why we seek those things out. We Nate and I still go to performances and churches of ambient music and things because it feels good. Um, and maybe there's a moment for transcendence in that, but I would wonder if the Baroque music was, like it sounds like for you, it's more reflective of things that you, under, you understand to be true about the nature of reality or maybe the nature of your own existence. Mm -hmm. And... For me, like, you know, there's certain books I've read in my life that I wasn't expecting a transformation. They just, like, completely uprooted my mind and deconstructed me. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, and you finish the book and you have just a different thing. And the same with certain kinds of music. So for me, that can be a sacred experience. It doesn't necessarily have to have a full gamut of things. And I think I tend to gravitate towards the agonizing ones or the intense or d depressive or something that I can relate to in there as a moment of transformation. Maybe maybe like yourself, maybe not. Um, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> that rambling 35-minute uh, question there um, about the nature of like, sacredness and your relation to the music that you like. Bach has uh, written uh, this piece, Erbarmedich, Have Mercy, My God. It's translated into English that way. And the lyrics are... I think just have mercy, my God, or have mercy, Lord, on me. Regard my bitter weeping. Some some translations see before you heart and I weep bitterly. Have mercy, my God. So, <laughs> what's what's more true than that? <laughs> Damn. Yeah. yeah. What, what is closer? What is closer to my experience than that? Nothing. Okay, I think we're back. Hello. Yo. Hey, what's up? You guys planned that? Yes. Yeah, we had that. Yeah, we wrote. We wrote actually every every single thing we said to you. We wrote it all down first, just because we like to be you know thorough and prepare. So. Yeah, I wish. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So just uh, I think Derek just has a couple quick questions, and then we can. Yeah, these um, are just like more personable. Here questions but um oh you save you save those for the very end well i don't know i i, I always look at them and i'm like i could like how are you they slide in and out of their dialogue but i didn't get to these so curious uh who is your imagined audience if there is one <laughs> is it just god i don't know i mean god is god my audience um, i don't know god is just sort of with me no matter what I do, you know, God, and God can't, uh, I do want to make, I want to, I want to make myself pleasing in his sight, so to speak, that's one of the things that I hear often said in the, uh, 
in church and the liturgy and stuff is that I want I want to be pleasing in his sight. So I, I do want to make God happy with my life. I think that is basically the the only thing that one should aspire to do in life. Um, but I wouldn't say that he's necessarily my audience because it's more like I'm his audience. Really, I'm a witness. So I think that God also, God loves us unconditionally, so it isn't so much that, you know, what, what does God care whether or not I'm an artist? <laughs> so do you think about other, how it's going to, and actually it's probably not then based on everything we've talked about, which I think is great. No, I don't, I don't think about other people at all, really. Good. <laughs> I mean, Good. okay, I'll put it this way, because that's not true, because I did spend this whole long uh time talking about how other people aren't doing enough charity and blah 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 and now I'm saying I don't think about other people it's not entirely true because I do think about them in this more general sense of of, uh, of wanting to, to demonstrate compassion and love to them um, in the name of God I, I do want to do that, I care about that very much uh, but just as far as do I want to impress them, appease them, am I trying to reach certain demographics, no and also this is, I mean, it's not that I started feeling this way necessarily, um, especially when I was younger. I think I was more starry-eyed about these things. But it's also just that I, I know that, oh, damn, I just did not only but also, but I just said but also. I hate when people do that, and I just did it. Sorry. So so it isn't, it, oh, wait, I, said, I think I said it isn't only. Never mind. I did do not only but also. I just did it as a contraction, so I didn't, I didn't, re- look at, look, I'm screwing myself up. <laughs> okay. So it isn't only that, that I don't, that I don't care to appease people it's it's but it's also (laughs) it's also that i uh no one can tell me what to do and so no one no one can judge what i do no one no one uh, no one has the sort of authority it's it's a shame like i almost wish i wish there was someone to whom i could go to say hey is this any good but there's nobody in my life i mean i have my teacher for my real but that's terrible like i wish i had somebody like with my teacher I know my teacher is, it's what you were saying earlier, Derek, my teacher like objectively can evaluate my skill and she can make me better. She's better than me. She's smarter than me. There's, it's very linear. It's like, I know I'm going to be great if I just keep doing what she says and I keep attending the lessons and practicing and like, because I am, I've made such progress. Like this is very straightforward. You know, it's true that she can't make me expressive. That's something that's sort of like my innate gift or whatever um so there's there's some aspects of this that she can't control sure there are only she can only take certain people so far because only certain people can only go so far so i mean yes like there's something about my own personal merits that that add to this situation that contribute to this progress but it's really just that i'm following what she's teaching me in this case like in basically virtually any other part of my life which is what makes it so hard nobody can tell me shit and nobody expects me to do anything that I do. And if I raise any idea to anybody else, they'll, they'll, they won't understand it or they won't understand why it's good, maybe until or unless they actually see it presented or something. So it's, it's like, uh, so, so since no one has any authority over me, I can't really have an audience, I guess. That's a perfect answer. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I, no, I, no. I feel very similarly. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> I feel like I sound like a like a lunatic sometimes. No, because I never talk to anybody. Sometimes people try to criticize me. I'm, I'm like, who the fuck are you? I don't. Please stop. Just I thank you. Yeah. All right. I mean, the uh, audience comes. Next question. Yeah. Is there uh, any media and heavy rotation for you right now of anything, any sort across the board? Um. What do you What I do you know, mean? Book, books, Me- music, media? literature. I have books, film. Uh, playing jump <laughs> jump rope. I don't know. Like, is there something you know? Um. No, not really. I mean, I, I should probably... You know, I've been listening to Alice Cooper lately. Oh, what are, any records in particular? <laughs> like when I go for a walk... Just because it's fun. It's a fun... That's a fun thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's fun. I also... That's just how I like to dress, you know. I actually really like how he dresses. I like dressing like Great that. style. Impeccable uh, vibes. Are you going to get a snake? <laughs> I don't know. I actually have a, you know, it's, you please know, bring terrible. a serpent snakes to your next performance. Rap. Please bring a serpent to the next performance. No, but snakes get a bad rap because they're associated with the because of the beast in the Garden of Eden. People think it's a snake. Ah, but but in the Gnostic snake. faith, the snake uh, is in- indicative of Jesus. Actually, so I'm you know, hey, it depends where you're coming from. Oh, I thought the, I thought that's interesting. Yeah. 
The snake, they say the snake in the Garden of Eden was Jesus? Well, because or they're, they're Adam snake? and Eve are ignorant inside of the Demiurge's lair, like the, the Sophia's offspring, right? It's not the true God that made Earth in, the, in their oh, cosmology. Ooh, this is making me itchy. It's, yeah. hey, I, yeah, look, just, look, just treat it as a cause. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be a philosophy. It's not supposed okay. to be taken literally. But <laughs> it's, it's, it was a critique on the uh, system they were living under at the time, really. And so the serpent uh-huh. representing actually knowledge and awareness and waking up and letting them see what they were living in, um, the system that didn't serve them, I think was really just a critique of the government, the structure people had lived under before it was canonized and became taken literally. And also it's inverting the Christianity, which, and the other stories, which there's concerns about these things becoming religious power structures instead of being spiritual teaching, you know, so there's, there's, there's reactionary reasons for it. I'm not, I am not promoting it. I'm going to need like another hour if we're going to talk about the creation. Oh yeah. You know what? I would love to have a separate episode about that, but for sure. I was, I was just offering the serpent as accessory for you at your next performance. That'd be. Yes. Well, I actually have, what I was going to say is I actually have some like, cause I have this, uh, really special, uh, jewelry collection that I sometimes I I sell parts because I, I'm also in every aspect of my life I'm just like paring down I'm getting you know it's like I said the distillation process I'm getting more and more and more specific which I think also means improved um, so there are two I have two snakes actually I have two like I have a snake necklace and a snake bracelet there we go. <laughs> and I, I, but they're really cool but I feel guilty about where I always wear a cross I feel so guilty about the idea of wearing snakes. But before because Christianity, the, the, the snake is also vitality. It's, it represents the yeah. we'll have to do a snake pod. It's, it's all those things. Yeah. But anyways, uh, other, uh, quick other question. Uh, morning lark or night owl? What do you prefer? What? Are you, are you a morning person or a night person? <laughs> well, uh, Nate and I have a theory about morning larks and night owls, so please enlighten us. Okay, um, I don't know that I'm really, I, I, I mean, I have trouble getting to sleep at night, but then I wake up early every morning. Mm, okay. Ascended. So it's kind of. <laughs> uh, I guess in the last, this, this is probably way too late for this question to even ask, but I wanted, to, for me. I wanted to ask earlier what um, a visceral childhood memory of yours was, anything that comes to mind. That is very invasive. I know. <laughs> and that's why it can be anything and it doesn't have to be the earliest thing or nothing, but. I find well, it's, I like to give it, it's an interesting, true, sincere answers to questions. when we're talking about spirituality. I think it, um, those questions can matter. So a visceral childhood memory. Mm. Well, now I have to think about this, which I guess is that that's that one would say that that's that that's like me being uh, whatever deceptive or manipulative or something if I'm thinking about it. But it's really because I just can't remember anything straightforwardly. Um, you know, you know, we were talking about the um, churches thing earlier. If someone's brought up in a certain church environment and then that just becomes, uh, the, even if the songs are kind of hokey, they, it becomes sentimental for that person. So they, they carry a certain meaning and even a certain tragedy. Well, it's like that for me, I guess, too, because the church I, I went to the most when I was a child was this one that's across the street from my parents. And when I was a child, I didn't understand church. I also didn't go to church for most of my childhood because my parents are, uh, they're not terribly religious. It's just that their parents were very religious. So they're not practicing Catholics or anything. But we did to appease like my dad's mother, we uh, or my, well, actually all the grandparents, uh, my parents, we would go to, they would take us to church uh, for like the first, I don't know, until I was about 10 years old, I guess. And I remember of course, being a child, I was very, I was uncomprehending of the, the mysticism. I mean, what, ch- what, what children, other than, other than, okay, yeah, there are some exceptions, like the Fatima kids, I mean, th- those, but the very few and far between, you know, that, that there are children who are really devout at an early age or really can grasp what it means. But I remember being in church with my grandmother, who has since died. She died 10 years ago. Um, she was, uh, she, she was the other, I mean, the, the two people, it's unfortunate, the two people closest to me who I love the most in life are dead, but, and I still have a couple left, but they're going to die too, because I love old people mostly, so <laughs> it's kind of comes with the territory, but, um, I remember being in that church, and there are these marble panels behind the altar, and they looked like deer to me, and I would look at them, and I would think, like, during, I was so bored at the, the mass, you know, that I would be, like, focusing on the on what I could see in the patterns of the marble, and I would see these big deer behind the priest, you know, and, and stuff like that. And my grandmother and I would walk up to the communion together before I was 
old enough to receive communion, and uh, the priest would administer communion to her, and then the priest would pat me on the <laughs> head. That's, that's really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. As we kind of, I, I think we might have to, to close out uh, now, but is there anything you want to plug? I don't know. It's maybe a weird question. <laughs> your Depop? <laughs> is, where can people buy your jewelry? <laughs> buy my clothes and jewelry. <laughs> I guess since we already met, ask David. Yeah. Yeah, ask David. Honestly, buy, you should buy stuff for me. That would be, because then I would, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want it, so buy, buy it for me. That sounds good. But uh, our people the, will talk to your yeah, people. Exactly. Oh, th- thank you so much again um, for for yeah. coming so on uh, <laughs> this this new media project. <laughs> Formi-se muito pneumático materiais.